You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Now, before we begin, there's an issue that has been brewing online about me, and I've been trying to avoid this for a few days now, but I feel like I owe you, the viewers of The Daily Show, an explanation. And also, my bosses are forcing me to address this. I'm referring, of course, to my hoodies. Many of you have been asking why I'm still wearing hoodies when it's 90 degrees outside. Well, you may not have noticed, but I'm not outside. I have been taping the show from a place called Inside, which, contrary to popular belief, is not outside. And so, because I am inside, as it's known, I have the ability to condition the air to a level and temperature of my choosing. And I know some people might ask, well, Trevor, then why don't you... why don't you just turn down the air conditioning so that the apartment is more warm? Well, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to wear a hoodie. And I like wearing hoodies. But still, to anyone who I've made feel hot, I apologize. I never intended for my temperature choices to affect your temperature feelings. Also, completely unrelated to the scandal, we won't be having a show uh, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, as I will be taking a long-planned vacation to go trout fishing. Anyway, on tonight's episode, Kanye West is coming for the White House, why celebrities were banned from sending tweets, and reparations are finally here. So let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick it off with Twitter, social media network, and Trump's longest-serving press secretary. On a normal day, it's a place where people can share ideas with each other while also getting yelled at by neo-Nazis. But yesterday was not a normal day. Today, Twitter is scrambling to recover from one of the biggest security breaches in internet history after Bitcoin scammers apparently compromised some of the platform's highest profile accounts for hours Wednesday, targeting companies like Uber and Apple and wealthy public figures like Bill Gates, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, even former President Barack Obama and former Vice President Joe Biden. Many of the hijacked accounts posting similar language, inviting users to submit Bitcoin payments to a single account, promising to double their money. Several hundred people quickly responded, sending in tens of thousands of dollars. Twitter revealing the hack was a coordinated social engineering attack by people who successfully targeted some of our employees with access to internal systems and tools. Twitter also confirming they prevented some verified accounts from tweeting Wednesday evening as they investigated the attack. That's right. Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Kim Kardashian. Yo, if you were famous, there was a good chance you were hacked on Twitter yesterday. Now, for some reason, the hackers missed my account, which <laughs> makes no sense because I'm, I'm famous, but whatever. It's probably like a second round or something. I, I don't care. So, Twitter released a statement saying that luckily, the president's Twitter account was not hacked. But how would they know? I mean, this is the same guy who tweets about beans, Iran, and the Confederacy in the span of 10 minutes. He pre-hacks himself. The only way you'd know if a hacker got Trump is if the spelling was correct. Guys, Trump spelled coronavirus right. I think he got hacked. So, in response to the hack, 
Twitter actually disabled tweets from anyone with a verified account. Yeah, blue check mark, couldn't tweet. And I gotta be honest, as someone who has a verified account, because I'm famous, remember? It was hard not being able to post for a few hours yesterday. And I had to resort to some drastic measures. At Anna Kendrick, I have a great voice and I would love to be in the next Trolls movie. At Trevor Noah, I told you to leave me alone. Blocked and reported. At Anna Kendrick, thanks so much for responding. Big fan. (laughs) Moving on to some political news. Last week, Kanye West, hip-hop superstar and permanent resident on everyone's prayer list, announced that he was running for president. And then a few days later, one of his advisors said, actually, he's not running for president. But now, maybe he is. Kanye West's unconventional presidential bid is showing signs of life. Oklahoma officials confirming that he will appear on the November general election ballot. Now, the group called Kanye 2020 filed the first federal election forms for West's candidacy. Okay, I'm sorry, this is just crazy. Kanye West is actually running for president? I mean, I guess he reversed his position on whether one man should have all that power. Now, a lot of people are worried that Kanye will be a spoiler for Joe Biden. But I don't know, man, think about it. Who is Kanye West? He's a man who goes on long, unintelligible rants, constantly flip-flops on his positions, brags about the size of his penis. I mean, if anything, Kanye is Trump, but with better beats. And I mean, this all goes to show you how much things can change. Who would have thought 10 years ago that one day you'd be thinking, okay, man, I'm scared that Kanye could become president, but at least Kim Kardashian will be there to bring some seriousness to the White House. But let's move on to someone even less qualified to be president than Kanye, Donald J. Trump. Most polls now show him losing badly to Democratic nominee and Sunglass Hut Platinum member, Joe Biden. And yesterday, Trump took a big step to try and stop the bleeding. Breaking news in Washington where President Trump announced a shakeup in his reelection team. With less than four months until election day, President Trump is announcing a major change to his reelection team. The president demoted longtime manager Brad Parscale. It comes amid a string of botched efforts to reboot his campaign amid the ongoing pandemic, including his June rally in Tulsa, where only a third of the arena was filled. Trump promoted the deputy campaign manager, Bill Stepien, to the new role of manager. Parscale will stay on the team. Sources say he was informed of the change by the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Wow. I, uh, I'm not gonna lie. I I kind of feel bad for this guy. Not only did he get fired, but he got fired by Jared Kushner. Like, what was that conversation like? We have to let you go because you're just not succeeding in your job. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to solving the Middle East. It's almost worse that he's also still part of the campaign team, right? Think about that, staying on the team when you've been demoted. It's like your wife leaving you, but then saying you're welcome to live with her and her new boyfriend. Oh, you can watch, baby. And you know what, if you ask me, this guy's not the problem here, man, he's a scapegoat. Donald Trump's campaign isn't struggling because of his campaign manager. It's struggling because Donald Trump is the candidate. What's a new campaign manager gonna do? He's gonna say, our campaign needs a consistent message. And then Trump will be like, you got it. I'm gonna do a photo of myself in a bathtub covered in Goya beans. So much Goya, 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 all over my body. So condolences to Brad Pascal, but you should be really proud of yourself, man. Cause at this point, getting out of the Trump campaign without getting into prison, that's an achievement. In other news, as coronavirus continues to rage across the country, 
more people are finally learning the importance of wearing face masks. Walmart and other major chains have announced that people must wear masks in their stores. It is mandatory. And the governor of Alabama issued a statewide mask mandate. But unfortunately, some people are still standing firm against science. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is banning local governments from mandating masks despite a sharp spike in cases in his state. He extended his public health declaration to include banning 15 cities and counties from ordering people to wear a face mask in public. We can have all this guidance and everything else, but if people won't follow it and do the right thing, then it it doesn't really matter. Okay, hold up, hold up, hold up. This governor is saying... Why even have laws? People aren't gonna follow them anyway? My man, we're already living through outbreak. I'm not trying to add the purge. I don't even get what the hang up is. What are people fighting? Are they fighting tyranny? Is that why they don't wanna wear masks? Because you realize the government also makes you wear clothes in public too, that's a thing. Yeah, but I don't see anyone showing up pantsless to Walmart like, these are freedom nuts. And finally, it took 155 years, but here's some good news for black people. A historic moment in North Carolina, the city of Asheville apologizing to black residents for racist policies and approving a resolution for reparations. The vote calls for increased investment in the black community, including in housing and business. The resolution also asks the state and federal governments to form policies to create generational wealth. Wow, 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 wow. This is really special news. And I think the first step of reparations should be changing that city's name from Asheville to Moisturizeville can't claim to be an ally of black people if you're named after their worst enemy. Unfortunately though, because this is happening in Asheville, North Carolina, all reparations will be paid in arts and crafts from the thriving gallery community. For more Asheville specific comedy, tune into my spin-off show, The De Asheville Show with Trevor, North Carolina. <laughs> now obviously people have a lot of strong opinions when it comes to reparations. So let's check in with our very own Dulce Sloan and see what she thinks about Asheville's historic move. Dulce Sloan, this is some exciting news, don't you think? I mean, African-Americans beginning to get reparations? Yeah, it sounds good, Trevor, but I've been black far too long to trust government promises. We're still waiting for that mule they promised us back in 1865. If you want me to trust them now, first they gotta pay up on that mule. Wait. You really want the 40 acres and a mule? No, I don't want the 40 acres because I know these white people. They're gonna give me a landfill in Idaho or Utah or some shit and then they'll make me pay taxes on it. Trevor, do you know you have to pay taxes every year? No wonder Wesley Snipes went to jail. Okay, so if you don't want the 40 acres, then I don't understand, why would you want the mule? Why wouldn't I want a mule? It can carry my groceries. I can open a petting zoo. And the best part is white people will be jealous I've got a pet that they don't have. I can dress it up in costumes. I can post pictures of it on Instagram. Oh, I can even bring it on planes. Ooh, white people are gonna be so thirsty for my mule. Mm, their jealousy. Ooh, that'll be the real reparation. Ooh, right, but do say you live mm, in an apartment. Mm. Where, where's the mule gonna live? That's the mule's problem. All I know is I'm gonna name him Fluffles and I'm gonna teach him to bite Karen's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, call the cops on me now with Fluffles chomping on your ass, Karen. Ha! Listen, anyway, I gotta go rent a moving van because I'm moving to Asheville. You know, home of reparations. Asheville, you better have my money. Fluffles, I'm coming, baby! 
All right, good luck with that, Dulce. Dulce Sloan, everybody. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna be checking in with how other countries are dealing with the coronavirus right now. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. The United States continues to be overwhelmed by the coronavirus. But how are other countries handling this global pandemic? Well, let's find out in our ongoing segment, Keeping Up With Corona, International Edition. Let's start our world tour in Russia, the artist formerly known as the Soviet Union. Everyone around the world is trying to find a COVID-19 vaccine, but Russia may have found a competitive edge. This is CNN Breaking News. And we start with breaking news coming into CNN. The US, Canada, and the United Kingdom have accused Russia of carrying out cyber attacks on several coronavirus research centers. The three governments believe the aim was to steal information about vaccine development. That's right, people. Russia is trying to hack its way to a vaccine. And honestly, I want Russia to steal the vaccine. Yeah, I said it. Because I'll be honest, based on how good they are at poisoning people, they're gonna be really good at making sure everyone is vaccinated. You won't even have to go to a doctor. You just have to bump into a guy on a bridge with an umbrella and it'll be over before you know it. Also, is it that bad if they steal the information if it leads to them getting a vaccine? I mean, at this point, I'll take the vaccine from anywhere. The same way a thirsty man in the desert will drink Dasani. We don't have choices. I'm just surprised Russia tried to hack America for the solution. I mean, the US is handling Corona worse than any other country. This is like cheating off the kid who spends the whole class drawing dicks on their desk. So answer number three is flaccid penis? Moving on to Japan, the country that always knew shaking hands was a bad idea. The Asian superpower has been doing a good job fighting the virus, and they're starting to reopen the country, but they're being very, very careful about it. At Fuji Q Highland Amusement Park outside Tokyo, these are two of the park's executives stoically riding Fuji Q's biggest coaster, Fujiyama, while displaying proper etiquette for their no screaming rule, implemented apparently to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Fuji Q said it received complaints the rule was too strict, so the fun park released this video to prove it can be done. The two men, as you see, one wearing a full suit and tie, do not change their expressions for the entirety of the four-minute thrill ride. The video then concludes with this philosophical piece of advice, quote, please scream inside your heart. That's right. Scream inside your heart. That's the same advice Dr. Fauci tells himself before every press conference. It's a really hard thing to not scream at an amusement park. And it's gonna be extra hard at Disney World because people there scream every time they see how much a hot dog costs. What? I paid what? And I guess one person who will never be able to ride roller coasters in Japan is my best friend, Olisa, because this is a clip from us riding a roller coaster before coronavirus. I miss human beings. Next up, let's go to Barbados, a beautiful Caribbean country and the world's number one exporter of Rihanna. 
Due to COVID-19 shutting down the tourism industry, Barbados is now trying to turn the global lockdowns to its advantage. Ever dreamed of living on an island paradise that could be a reality for you? Remote working is the new normal, and Barbados wants to turn its beaches adjacent to the crystal blue water into your new outdoor office. The Caribbean country is going to introduce a 12-month Barbados welcome stamp program, which would allow visitors from overseas to stay for an entire year and work remotely. Barbados officials are hoping it could help jumpstart the island's economy. Okay, Barbados. This sounds like a pretty awesome deal. And there's no catch. I mean, it's not like Barbados is an island or something and you have to get in an Uber to go to the airport to get on an airplane and maybe catch coronavirus 10 times before you even set foot on the beach. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, this is tempting, but getting to Barbados could be risky. You know, I'm just gonna have to move to Barbados inside my heart. Now, on the other hand, maybe this is the perfect idea because if corona does get worse and you're in the Caribbean, Hearing that music on the steel drums is gonna make things sound better because it is impossible to be sad when a steel drum is playing. Even Dr. Fauci's warnings would sound happier with a steel drum in the background. It's a very difficult situation as, as was predicted. This is gonna get worse before it gets better for sure. That's right, guys, we're all gonna die. And finally, the coronavirus pandemic has been especially difficult for the world's authoritarian dictators. They have to fight a very real disease while also pretending that nothing in their country is ever wrong. But the Central Asian dictatorship of Turkmenistan has found a solution. As serious as the global situation is, one country claims to have COVID-19 completely under control. Former Soviet Republic Turkmenistan sits right beside Iran, which has reported more than 260,000 infections. But Turkmenistan says it has zero cases. Pretty unbelievable. Yet, a week after a visit from the World Health Organization, the authoritarian government has now strongly recommended its people wear masks. But the reason given? To protect them from dust. Hmm. I feel like we don't really have the full story of what's happening in Turkmenistan. Because this sounds like the family who sends out a Christmas newsletter talking about how perfect everyone's lives are. And then at the very end, they casually mention that Bobby's been granted parole. What? Honestly, I think that this dust excuse is actually more embarrassing than just saying you have coronavirus. Don't worry, we don't have disease here. We just have very dusty country because we don't own a vacuum cleaner. But if you think this dust excuse is ridiculous, wait until you see the public service announcement released by Turkmenistan's health ministry. Greetings from the Turkmenistan Health Department. Now that you're all wearing masks to protect yourselves from our very non-contagious Turkmenistan dust, here are some other tips for staying safe in our very healthy country where there's no coronavirus at all. Stay six feet apart at all times to properly admire the beauty of the Turkmenistan people. All non-essential businesses will be closed indefinitely because our glorious people deserve a vacation. Vacation must be taken inside your home. If you experience difficulty breathing, go to the hospital immediately so doctors can assure you that you're breathing just fine, but in like a new special Turkmenistan way. And finally, if you see anyone coughing, just give them a smile. 
and report them to the Ministry of Non-Coronavirus Affairs. Stay safe, but there's no reason to. <laughs> we totally made that video. All right, don't go away, because after the break, we'll be talking with an ER doctor who has a close-up view of the COVID pandemic, and then I'll catch up with Patton Oswalt. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with emergency room physician, Michelle Harper. We talked about being on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic and her new memoir, The Beauty in Breaking. Dr. Harper, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with congratulating you on your success. You are now not just Dr. Harper, you're also Dr. Harper, New York Times bestselling author. How does it feel? It feels amazing. It's surreal. It, 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 I, I'm still getting used to it, so, but it's, it's lovely. Thank you. I, I think what I appreciate about it the most is the fact that it's not just that you're a best-selling author, it's that it's a book that deserves to be read. Tell me a little bit about what it's been like being a doctor on the front lines of the worst pandemic, arguably, that humankind has ever seen. And so I'm in New Jersey. That's where I practice clinically. So it's, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster. I mean, six weeks ago, maybe, it was, it was what we're seeing in the South, where there's a deluge of patients. Um, we don't have enough equipment. We still don't have enough equipment. We don't have enough staff. People, are, people were getting sick. It was not only us getting sick uh, and the patients getting sick, but I was taking care of healthcare providers from my region and other regions, like the technician who came in and he kept apologizing because he was feeling terrible. He couldn't breathe. His resting heart rate was high. His resting oxygen was low. And he's apologizing because his phone is blowing up because his boss is calling him, telling him to get back to work. And they know he's sick. They're all getting sick, but they don't know what to do because they can't staff the unit. And of course he can't go back because I have to admit him back to the hospital. So that's what we went through. And now there's a little bit of a lull, thank goodness, in the Northeast, but we're bracing because we see what's going on. We all feel it will come back. Another thing that's really opened my eyes has been your writing, not just in the book, but in the posts that you've put out about the effect on healthcare workers. And one thing I found really interesting was where you said a lot of us, meaning healthcare workers, don't know if we'll come back to this profession once this is all done. Tell me why there is that sentiment in a lot of the medical community. Because I'm seeing this from many healthcare workers who go, I don't know that this is for me. I don't know that I want to be a part of this. Why? What, other than the, the coronavirus itself, what is, what, is, what is driving this feeling? There is a lot of stress. And when I mention that we feel we're, we're treated as more disposable than our equipment, that's a real thing. It's, it's a strange thing to be called a hero, yet I don't believe heroes are put in a position where they don't have the equipment that they need, when they don't have the staffing and departments that they need, when their hours are being cut, their pay is being cut, because in healthcare, in America, healthcare is, for the most part, like any other private industries, and it's based on profit for a few. That's very demoralizing, and those are the conditions we're working in. Um, and then of course I work with many people who they have families. I know many healthcare providers, what everyone's saying is true. I know every many healthcare providers who don't go home. They're staying in hotels. They're staying with a single friend where they can be in a basement apartment. So 
their whole lives are being turned upside down in the midst of this. You, you also talk extensively about the disparities between hospitals in underserved communities, in poorer communities and communities of color versus hospitals in wealthier um, or affluent neighborhoods. That's been difficult for some people to understand because I've seen newspapers or people who choose and they go, I've been to this hospital, everything seems fine. And yet there are healthcare professionals saying yes, because the load is being unfairly borne by certain communities where there is a dis, you know, disproportionate amount of people getting extremely sick from this disease. What is it like working in a community hospital or a hospital in a community where people do not have the means and the hospital doesn't have the means? What it's like is heartbreaking. I mean, I, I personally, I prefer to work in communities that are inner city, largely black and brown and lower resource financially. Um, because I, I go where the need is. And so what I'm seeing is that the people being most affected are the essential workers. And we know that in these communities, essential workers are the people who are working in mail delivery, um, store clerks. These are people who can't not work. We need them to be working and they can't afford to not work. They don't have the kind of jobs that they can perform from home. So they're their they're greatest risk. They're greatest risk of infection, greatest risk of abuse. I, mean, I, I took care of a young woman, maybe around 18 years old, 19 years old, who came in because she didn't know if she wanted to live anymore. She already was pretty isolated, didn't have any support from family or friends. Now in further isolation from coronavirus, working in a job where the, the um, the customers coming in were abusive to her, where she was being harassed by her boss, and she didn't know where else to go. She needed someone to talk to. And we just spoke, and I listened to her, and I told her that what she's feeling is real, and we're all feeling it. And I asked her if there was anything else we could do for her, if she felt like she needed to stay in the hospital. And she said, I, I just needed someone to talk to. There's no one to talk to, and you listen to me. And I feel like I can go on. And I'm seeing, and she was well, thank goodness, but I'm seeing a lot of that versus the mail delivery person who wasn't well and his whole department wasn't well and he was admitted to an intensive care unit. So those are the burdens I'm seeing, the, the burden of not having access to regular care, not having benefits, not having pay, and being forced to work under these stressful circumstances with long hours under circumstances. You know, they're not healthcare providers. They didn't sign up for this. They don't have the same training we do, and they don't have any equipment at all. So that's what I'm seeing. I also want to mention that, of course, I'm seeing nursing home patients being affected more, but also the prisoners. And this is particularly heinous to me because they can't make their own decisions. They can't say, guess what, today I want to go to the emergency department. And I've seen so many of them when they come in and they can't breathe and they're just about to be intubated, or maybe we can stave it off with other therapies. And they're terrified. And many of them were young and healthy. And they tell me over and over again how they wanted to come in, but they were told in the prison they had to wait when they got around to it, when the next vehicle was ready to take them and it could be days. So those are some of the uh, of the disparities that COVID is really laying bare for us all to reckon with. Well, I'll tell you this, Doc, I, if I could wave a magic wand, everyone would read your book, especially the people who don't think this is real or don't uh, you know, take it as seriously as they should. 
Um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in the hospitals every single day. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Pleasure was mine. Thank you, Dr. Hopper. After the break, I'll be speaking to the one and only Patton Oswalt. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is the legendary comedian and actor, Patton Oswalt. We talked about his latest project, the HBO docuseries about the Golden State Killer called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is based on the investigative work and book by his late wife, Michelle McNamara. Check it out. What drives me is the, the need to put a face on a unknown killer. And what, what I love is this intersection of sort of technology and crime solving in that people can get sort of wheeled out of their house for something they did in 1957 because of the internet, because of DNA. I really get off on that. Patton Oswalt, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Trevor Noah. Thank you for uh, having me on from afar. Before we get into the docu-series and really one of the most amazing stories ever told, how are you? How are you doing? Because you, you, you're, you're a parent. Are you homeschooling? Are you living? What is happening right now? We are trying to do a combination of homeschooling and, uh, and living. Uh, I think what you find out very, very quickly as a parent, no matter what you do, education is not fun. Uh, when kids hit a certain age, they want a summer. They deserve just a kind of daydreaming, non-structured time. And when you're right. to do that sneaky, um, let's make math fun by playing poker. They, it's like, oh my god, I'm going to ruin poker for this. Like, I don't. I, I just, I want them to have a summer. I don't want to, you know, make tr- somehow tie swimming in with American history. This docu series, it's truly one of the most interesting shows I have ever watched based on one of the most interesting books that we have ever read. And honestly, one of the most despicable stories that I think, you know, humans can ever consume created. And I mean, people have credited your late wife with this work. Tell me about the docuseries. Like, like what, what are you trying to do that's different to the book? And what story are you trying to tell? Well, what we're, especially what Liz Garbus, the director, who's an incredible documentarian in this six part documentary, what she's doing is taking a lot of the stories of especially the victims and the detectives and expanding them. I mean, Michelle delved pretty deeply into those in the book, but what Liz is trying to show is the aftermath, the resilience, and especially the bounce back of a lot of these victims and survivors of this uh, killer and, and of this, this insect, basically. And, you know, the, the, it, it, it really feels amazing. There's a point where they talk about how they've gone to every one of his arraignments and they just stare at him and he cannot meet their gaze. He can't lift his head and wow. look at them. And it's just this, seeing this guy reduced in a way he never wanted to be seen, it feels like justice. And from everything I've heard from the different law enforcement officials that I'm talking to, he's absolutely faking the the need for the wheelchair, the, um, the, the being frail. He's trying to garner sympathy and people are just like staring right at him with no with zero empathy and it's shrinking him even further. And anytime victims or survivors can be afforded that opportunity, I think it's very important. You know, what's, what's really t- tough in society is um, watching stories like this, but then not being terrified by these stories as if they are the norm, you know, because they, they are exceptionally horrifying, but they are still exceptional in that they, it's not everybody. So when, when, when this show is being put together, is it a story that's being told like it could happen to you or, or did you guys make a conscious effort to tell a story 
that that is like, man, it's crazy that this can happen, you know, but luckily it's not happening to everybody. A couple of things that we emphasize were, um, no, this is not happening to everyone. Uh, serial killers are a, are a very rare, um, very twisted, sad group of people. But what we also, especially this is what Michelle kind of focused on in her book and Liz really, I thought, brought into even bigger focus is mm -hmm. there was a certain way that women and especially women who had been raped and assaulted were treated and thought of in the 70s that we have we've done a lot of progression on. We still have a long way to go. But when you see how a lot of them were treated, they kind of subconsciously had it in them that they were partially at fault for this. Um, and so there's something very uh, it's it's very frightening to think that that in the so in those so-called liberated progressive times, things were so um, medieval in a lot of ways. And, and right. it's good to see the progress we've made away from it. You know, your late wife was credited with putting so many of the pieces together, really guiding law enforcement and the public at large to focus on the facts that help get this killer caught. You, you wrote, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful love letters that I've ever heard or seen from a human to another human being. Surely, on a personal level, delving into this work, like, it, it must make you proud. It must make you... It must bring you joy and sadness at the same time. What has this journey been like for you? Whew. I mean, it, it's a combination of, you know, the, the sadness will never totally be gone, but, but it, it does feel really good to know that in, it, amongst all that tragedy... Michelle left behind, you know, dozens of portraits of strength and resilience and adaptation, men and women, um, that hopefully other, you know, potential crime solvers and other, and I hope there's not a lot of them, but other victims and survivors can look at as a lifeline or as a piece of wreckage to cling on to in the storm. Yeah, it truly is one of the most amazing pieces of work I I've had the chance to see, and I hope everybody watches it. Uh, congratulations to you. Congratulations to the team for putting it together. And of course, thank you to your late wife for, for making this uh, what it is. Hopefully the next time I see you, we'll be back on stage performing for human beings in person. Oh my God, please, right? something. Uh, it's, it's just, listen, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna blow too much smoke up your ass, but after we watch the news every night, then we, we, we DVR you and my wife is like, okay, let's a little dessert, like a little relief. <laughs> so just thank you. I don't, I don't know how you you and your writers face all this madness every day and go, let's put on a show, but you do. Thank you, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I know you don't like it, but I think there's a great business opportunity in swimming American history. You should patent that and we can make a lot of money. Trust me on this one. Um, let's, let's talk about that off the air. We'll talk about it off the air. <laughs> Patton Oswald, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Patton. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, America is facing a nationwide poll worker shortage. And it's because most poll workers are over 60 and COVID is still in the air. And so understandably, they're not showing up. But fewer poll workers means fewer polling stations are open. And it means there's gonna be longer lines and not everyone can afford to stay and wait in those long lines, especially in communities of color. But the good news is, most poll working is paid. And in some states, you can be as young as 16 to do it. So if you're interested and you have the time, this is your chance to save your granny, protect democracy, and get paid. Until next week, stay safe out there. And remember, if I ask you for money on social media, 
send it to me. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. That's never me. I will never ask you for money on social media. I will ask you in person. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.